1: Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Beth. How are you? (laughs) I'm just dandy. All right. So I'm excited about today because we're going to be talking about therapy. Oh, yay. Good how, topic. How do you feel? I know. I think we're, <laughs> th- I think this might be one of the few things where you and I are on the exact same page. We are, yeah, we are, and that doesn't happen very often. No. We are pro-therapy, <laughs> right? Pro-therapy. Yeah. So yeah. have you always felt that way or did that come on the heels of a diagnosis?
0: Nope. Nope. Growing growing up, I, I you know, I just came from a family where it just wasn't like we didn't really – not that we didn't believe in it, maybe, but it just wasn't something that like anybody saw after. So I never saw anybody. Was there a stigma in your family? Do you probably, think? probably, yeah. See, I grew I'm up in not a like family- throw
1: anybody under the bus, but yeah, probably a little bit. <laughs> we won't ask for names. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up in a family where it's like if anything goes wrong, you go to therapy. Oh, that that's healthy. <laughs> I don't know, is
0: it? Huh? Uh, yeah, I think so. I don't okay. know. We'll ask
1: Casey. We'll, we'll ask Casey. So, <laughs> yeah. okay. So we're both pro-therapy. So we're going to talk about what role that played in our journeys and just kind of, is there a stigma associated with it? What are the benefits of, of going to a therapist, especially in light of a serious diagnosis? So last episode, we talked to Jamie, who is a breast cancer patient who shared her emotional struggles after treatment. And today, we're going to build on that topic of emotional well-being by talking to a therapist who specializes in treating cancer patients.
0: Yay. (laughs) So needed.
1: (laughs) Yes. Yes. So our guest today is Casey Mills. Casey is a licensed professional counselor, and her practice is called Rising Willow Counseling in St. Peter's, Missouri, which includes individual therapy as well as couples therapy. And Casey has a special interest in providing support to people diagnosed with cancer. So she says that the goals of therapy are to reduce stress, increase quality of life, provide installation of hope, and cope with life transitions. So Casey, welcome. Good morning, everyone. We're so excited to have you here. Yes. I'm
2: excited to be here.
0: Before we learn a little bit more about Casey and go into some fun icebreakers, let's hear from our first sponsor.
1: Hair loss is consistently ranked as one of the most feared side effects of chemotherapy treatment. The emotional impact chemo hair loss can have on patients has been well documented. Scalp cooling is a simple treatment that can prevent hair loss caused by certain chemotherapy drugs. The use of scalp cooling is proven to be effective in preventing chemotherapy-induced alopecia and can result in people retaining much of their hair. Paxman is the global leader in scalp cooling. Their cold cap is scientifically proven to reduce hair loss during chemotherapy. If you are facing cancer treatment and concerned about losing your hair, ask your provider about scalp cooling and visit our website at www.coldcap.com. Okay, and
0: we're back. So we're gonna start off with a couple icebreakers just to get to know Casey a little bit more and just to bring a little
1: lightheartedness to this.
0: So first, let's ta- let's ask Casey, tell us about the first your worst date that you've ever been on.
1: yeah, we're we're all married now. so yes. all yeah, all three all three of us are happily married. We're not actively dating, <laughs> but I am interested in knowing this if you guys have had a bad date.
2: So I will kind of preface it, since I'm so interested in positive psychology, the site that I had the worst date is also the site where I found my husband. Ooh, so, me too. Oh, nice. oh I'm excited. Okay. So I um, uh, met my husband through Harmony, which was not my worst date. That was my best date, my lifelong date, right? <laughs> but my worst date in the process of finding him was a, somebody in my field had asked me on a date. And the whole date was like a compilation where I was a test subject.
1: So oh. yes. He so, was analyzing you?
2: Well, it was more like cognitive behavioral and the fact of seeing how I would respond to things on my, like, do you know how we write like almost like it's like it's not an intake, but you answer all those questions mm-hmm. about yourself. Mm-hmm. And so when I would state that this is a deal breaker, he would then where you should not be matched with anyone who would have your deal breakers, right? He would pose what if I have this deal breaker? So for example, one of mine was smoking. I have, um, I've had uh, two grandparents die from lung cancer from smoking pipes. So one of mine is uh, lung is uh, smoking. So he, stated, what if I went and asked this person over here for a cigarette and smoked a cigarette in front of you? Or what if I... So he kept trying to, like, test me?
0: What? I would have bounced halfway through that meal. What? No, I'm out. That is horrendous.
1: (laughs) What what about you, Sarah?
0: Oh. (sighs) This is is a tough question for me. I feel like I've had a lot of good dates, and I've had aspects of dates that are really bad. I think just any time... Anytime I was on a date that I felt like I didn't connect. Well, I'll tell you, I met somebody in a traffic jam once. Like, we just got to talking. Of course you between. did. Yeah, of course. Of course you did. And I knew about halfway through the date because he was much older that, like, this isn't for me. Like, you know, he was really fun. And I had, we had a fun time. Like, we went riding on a motorcycle and everything. But... But I think whenever you realize halfway through the date, and then they don't, and are still, then it's just like, okay, this is awkward, because now I have to tell you, like, I'm out, but we can still, like, enjoy our time together.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that is rough. So
0: that, that I mean, that was probably, I would say, my worst date. So maybe that's, I haven't had a terrible, terrible date. So Really? Okay. <laughs> yeah. Look at you.
1: <laughs> so I, I actually haven't had terrible, terrible dates either. But ironically, I think my worst date was my first date with my husband. <sighs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, first of all, basically asked him out. But then we go to see Armageddon just to date myself. That was was our date when I was 17 years old. And so he picked me up and, you know, a movie safe because you don't have to have too much conversation. You can talk about the movie after. And so we watched this movie. And, and then afterward, he and it was just kind of awkward, like on the way to the movie. You know, I was 17. He was asking me, you know, what I wanted to study in college, which I'd given no thought to whatsoever. Mm-hmm. He was two years older than I was. Mm-hmm. And and so I was just kind of looking at him like, I don't know, dude. You know. And so it was just an awkward, you know, kind of that get to know you conversation. So then we sat through the movie and then afterward, he's like, Well, it's still kind of early. Do you want to go get some ice cream? And I'm like, Yeah, let's do that. You know, so we go to Dairy Queen and I get in line, and I mean it's a really long line. I get in line. He doesn't get in line. And I said, are you not going to get ice cream? He's like, no, I don't. I'm not really hungry. So (laughs) That's awkward. Awkward. I'm like, well, I'm not going to make you stand here for 30 minutes while I stand in line and pig out on ice cream. So I'm like, I go, well, we can just, I go, we'll just go. And he's yeah. like, Are you sure? I'm like, yeah, let's just go. So we get back in the car and he takes me home and then he he just kind of slapped my knee and he's like, All right, he's like, had a good time, see ya. And <laughs> you married him. That's and I so married cute. him. I married him. <laughs> I, both of us both of us joke about it now. We're like, Why did we go on a second date? And neither one of us knows. I love doing those. <laughs> I know, doing too. I think it's so fun to get to know our guests. So, Casey, tell us, why did you become a mental health professional?
2: Sure. So it started when I was pretty young, actually. So when I was 15, I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease. And that that is a lymphoma uh, form of cancer. And so I would be actually hospitalized for lengths of stay, not it would be more of the side effects from the chemotherapy, my neutrophils would be very low, and I would just get really ill. And so what the nurses started asking me to do, because I really tried to keep a positive mindset. They would have me talk to other kids who came onto the unit to offer hope or offer my experience. So I started at 15, and then in my community, after I went through my treatment that ended around 17, some of the adults in my community would ask me for support, want a connection from a very small town. And so just being able to share my journey, offer hope, um, offer information about what my experience was like just having that universalization of connecting with someone. So it actually started quite young in adolescence.
1: Wow. That's amazing. You were like, yeah, you were mentoring. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine that. Did you find as, as Sarah and I do that mentoring other patients is just as fulfilling for you as it is for them? I mean, did you, did you find that he helped you in your healing?
2: So healing. I think that connection too. And then taking something that can feel traumatic and scary and turning it into something helpful, it helps you feel a purpose. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think that's why. And I and I feel, you know, that obviously this is faith based in the fact that I feel that again, that's what's one of the reasons I'm on this earth, right? That's why God's keeping me here is that that i have a purpose to fulfill so i keep trying to find different ways to fulfill that purpose and that was just one of them
1: yeah that's awesome so how have you seen cancer affect women's mental health during during a cancer journey
2: sure so i've seen this affect women in very diverse ways so what i find is some women in the beginning stages especially are in the fight or flight mode so maybe right after diagnosis or are right in the beginning of treatment so the fight mode is like where you're organizing your appointments, you're organizing your meds and taking your meds, you're potentially researching new treatments, you're looking at outcomes, you're getting the testing, you're getting the scans, right? You're trying to take care of your families. So sometimes I find that people do not even feel the effects of the, their diagnosis until months or years later. And that's when I see sometimes the stages of grief set in. So that's the denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. So that's when it just kind of depends on, I think every person is so different in this journey. Some women perseverate on what they can control. And that's what I find can affect women's mental health and afterwards. So after, so say that there is, it's after treatment. And then I find that some women will perseverate on something they control, such as diet or health, or exercise. Mm-hmm. But it gets to the point of where it's unhealthy, it becomes obsessive mm-hmm. because there is an immediate effect from it, right? And just want to have that control in your life again. So that's kind of where some of the things that I've recognized.
0: We talk about a lot like the wheels falling off after. Do you recommend for women if they don't already have a healthcare professional, a mental healthcare professional that they're working with. Do you recommend they start some kind of treatment to kind of help transition them from the treatment where they're, they're active with appointments and, you know, trying to figure out the diagnosis and doing all that research, having somebody that they can go to and that, that they trust so that they're there and already have that relationship
1: set up for? once everything, once the dust settles. Yeah, like what point in the journey do you recommend patients get this person on their team?
2: Sure, I mean, that's a great question. So I believe it's never too early and especially if you feel like your quality of life is being impacted or say that you do not have a strong support system or you do have a support system, but there's certain issues that you would not talk about with your support system that you would wanna talk about with A counselor, something that's going to be and someone that's going to be kept in complete privacy. Maybe you want a sounding board or you want a resource for relaxation or pain management techniques or a confidant. Somebody provides information, coping skills, all of that. So, Mm -hmm. you know, goal setting, things like that. So, no, I don't think it's too early. And I do think it could be a good option where you are transitioning as well. And so to each their own about what stage where it feels like it's the right stage for them. And yeah. then looking at your quality of life.
1: So Sarah and I both sought therapy after active treatment was over. We thought we handled it pretty well. We were ready to move on with our lives. And then, boom, we both kind of got hit with things that we weren't expecting emotionally. And I think it's interesting because Faith Through Fire did some market research, and we were interested to know, you know, is this unique to us? But after talking to healthcare providers and then doing our market research, we found that only 19% of patients... Felt equipped to transition into survivorship, and I think that a lot of that might be because they weren't expecting that emotional fallout once, kind of like what you said, Casey. All the planning and and having a consistent schedule and all that—that that fight is done. Mm-hmm. You know, then then you're you're sitting there wondering what's what's going on and why can't you return to the person you were before? So I want to kind of start talking about like the stigma with mental health, but before we do that, do you want to do you want to do some boobs in the news? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Casey, do you want to do some boobs in the news? We'll keep it short because I feel like we have a lot to talk about.
0: Sure. Boobs in the news is a fun segment where we read funny tweets from real people or ridiculous news stories. Boobs in the news. Bibs in the news. Bibs
1: in the news. Okay, so we all have kids. Quick, quick roll call here. I've got an 11, a 9, and a 6 a year old. How old are yours, Sarah? Three and six. And Casey, what about your son?
2: He would want me to say seven and a half. Oh, wow. oh okay, there we go. So we all got youngins. So
1: I just pulled a couple of funny tweets um, from parents, right? So I'll just read a couple of these. I just thought they were funny. So this one's from Sweatpants Share, which tells you a, a lot right there. But isn't everyone
0: sweatpants well, is nowadays in, in, in the in the days I, of COVID?
1: I particularly relate to this because that's my that's my second skin. So Sweatpants Share said, "Quote." After 10 months out of school, the very first day of in-person learning, what do they do? After everything I've been through, they give my son a recorder to take home.
0: (laughs) Do you know what a recorder is? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was like,
1: to record her voice? (laughs) No. No. Yeah, that little flute thing. No, (laughs) it's that flute thing that (laughs) they always give you in music class. Do you remember those? Yes. I got one. Did you get one in music class? Yeah. Casey, did you get a recorder ever? I
2: have no clue what you're even talking about. What? Uh
1: (laughs) Well, maybe our son hasn't gotten one yet, which is interesting
0: because they would have to have one for every student because that is definitely not the definition of
1: COVID friendly. COVID friendly. Yeah. Maybe they blow my spit into the Maybe this they've tube. banned. It's like a little. It's like a little wood flute. Yeah. And they. I mean, they do. You blow into it and it makes this really high pitched sound. And you, make, so, you play oh. hot cross buns and twinkle right, twinkle right, little right, star. Right. Okay. Well, maybe that tweet has been lost on my uh, <laughs> counterparts here. Here's here's another one that says her name on here is that mom though. So she says, is my house clean and tidy and laundry folded neatly and meals prepared for the week? No. But am I less stressed and making fun memories with my kids who are playing nicely? Also no. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Winning. Right, right, right. Uh, All right. One more and then we'll stop. So this one's from Professional Warrior. It says, As a mother, my favorite pastime is having my performance critiqued by people who demand on me for survival. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Your kids ever complain? My kids. Oh, yeah. Mom, you didn't make this like you did
0: last time. Or, you know, we'll have somebody... My my best friend's daughter. She'll go. Wait, this is not the same macaroni that you made last time that you were here. I'm like, oh great, I can't remember what macaroni the that was. Yeah, high. yes, That's, the bar is always super high. Oh, it's okay. just kids. Yeah, I just I just give them the look. Yeah,
1: like they they say something like that. I give them the look, and they're like, thank you. Yeah,
0: I usually say, you go, go grocery shopping
1: next time. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. Bibs in the news. And we're back. So let's talk about stigma. We kind of talked about it a little bit in our intro, Sarah, about Mm -hmm. the stigma with mental health. You felt like maybe there was a little bit of that in your home, but it just wasn't really thought of to ask for assistance with your mental health. I I think that's interesting that we will seek help for every other health issue that we Mm -hmm. have And yet we don't think that mental health, which I would argue is one of the most important is the most important in having Mm -hmm. a high quality of life. That is the thing that we back burner. Like, do you see that as a therapist, Casey?
2: Well, as a therapist, no, because people are coming in to see me. By the time
0: they get there, they got over it. it. Right. As
2: A human being. Yes. I feel like it's improving, you know, and it's so interesting when you're saying that, that about how much and many of us get help for our what's considered quote unquote medical issues, but I'm gonna throw out a statistic here. So the National Institute of Mental Health identified one in five people, this is pre-COVID, ha- live with mental illness. And this was a this statistic was found in 2019. So imagine now after COVID. And we have increased isolation, we have the increased depression, increased anxiety, we have decreased support systems, decreased that contact, going through life transitions alone, right? So imagine what that number would actually look like today.
1: hmm well, in one in three, I mean, when we let's define kind of a mental So he- one in five Oh, one in five. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's define like a mental health issue, too. Like it doesn't it. it there are lots of different things that qualify mm-hmm. as a mental health issue. If you have anxiety, that's a mental health issue. Right. Mm-hmm. If you have, you know, a depression, that's a mental health issue. If- C- Obsessive compulsive. Right. Yeah. Like, right. There are so
0: many there's and- so many different things. And, and, and I think the big thing is like, I I remember when I said, oh, I'm seeing a counselor. I'm seeing somebody now. A lot of people think like they immediately go, well, what's
1: wrong? You're like, I have cancer. What's not like what's not wrong? I mean, like, I I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, think about, I mean, the level of anxiety that Mm -hmm. you have when you get diagnosed with a life threatening disease. Mm -hmm. I'm on that plane where I'm like, why isn't every oncologist referring a patient to a mental health professional at the moment? Yeah that they get diagnosed with this. This mm-hmm. is so anxiety provoking. Yeah. And you try to cope on your own and as somebody who prides themselves on being able to just pull myself up by the bootstraps and and muddle through whatever gets thrown my way, I I would I needed help. I mean, maybe not immediately, you know, because we both sought help after active treatment was over. I thought I was handling it well. You mm-hmm. know, it was only through the work with my therapist that I realized, wow, there's there's some work to be done here. Yeah,
2: You know, back to, you know, when you're mentioning why is not every oncologist referring their patients to a mental health professional or a support group or a program like yours with a mentorship? You know, what's really interesting is we don't have that necessarily here. But there are areas and states that do as close as Chicago, where they'll have comprehensive cancer care that focuses on. So it's a one stop shop of where you're in a building where they set you up very first day Mm -hmm. with besides focusing on your treatment. They're focusing on like the treatment, like chemo radiation surgery. They're also focusing on nutritional therapy, Mm -hmm. mind body medicine, counseling, pain management, yoga, all of this in one facility. So it's not as popular here But as close as Chicago, they have those type of facilities that really understand the whole mind-body connection when it comes to cancer treatment.
1: Mm. Yeah, I I have seen those programs elsewhere, and I think they're amazing. I I do question. I think that I'm going to throw Missouri in particular under the bus a little bit. They are slow okay. to they <laughs> they are slow to adopt anything innovative or mm-hmm. new, and especially when it comes to therapies that address quality of life, it's it's just not something that they gravitate toward, and it's really disappointing on the patient side. I think Sarah and I have both expressed this as mm-hmm. patients, and then also in speaking to all the women that we help. It's, it's a frustration. It's a frustration yeah. that the other aspects of their care and mental health being such a huge component of that. And, and keep in mind, too, here's another stat, that, that cancer patients who have depression are have a 19% higher mortality than those that are not depressed, which, you know, has so many ramifications for the patients themselves and their quality of life. But also, you know, hospitals are interested in controlling healthcare costs. And when you've got patients with other issues you know that's going to spike those costs. So this is something that everybody should care about and put put these interventions in place. But I agree with you Casey. I think we're we're lacking here in the state of Missouri and we've seen that firsthand in in how people respond when you say, you know, even with faith through fire, we're a little bit different because we're really interested in addressing the emotional Impact of a cancer diagnosis. I think there are so many amazing nonprofits out there that are providing services to to eliminate barriers to care, and they are so needed. But I think that what gets less press is the emotional fallout and ramifications of getting this life threatening diagnosis, and providing the emotional support, whether it be you know through mentorship or through a healthcare provider like yourself it's just so it's so critical mm-hmm. it's so critical yeah so I'm treating the whole person not just like not just the diagnosis it's
2: exactly yeah
1: so here's something that I want to kind of get into I'm really excited about this topic Casey you and I have discussed this before about the topic of resiliency sure. and the opportunity that exists to use a breast cancer diagnosis or any traumatic experience for that matter to grow as a person and develop resilience so can you kind of share with everybody what is resilience and what have you seen as a therapist regarding patients who have it or develop it and the difference between those that have it and those that don't? Is that, sure. is that a mouthful?
2: <laughs> no, I got it. So great question. So, you know, a basic understanding of resilience or resiliency is when someone can find positive ways of coping, either finding strength or adapting in the face of negative life events. So for some, the more you experience in life, the more resilient you are. You learn those coping skills and how to overcome the hardships. So you have that baseline to compare. For example, if I can make it through, you know, A, I can for sure make it through with B, what's going on right now, right? So you have that baseline to compare it to with through yourself, right? But for some – that resiliency may just increase over time. So say you don't have that you baseline, you've not experienced that hardship before. It doesn't mean you cannot overcome it, but it's your perception about your ability to overcome it. So it's that perception is reality with that too. So there is an author, Bernie Siegel, and he, I was reading his books when I was 15, but, <laughs> he, but he is, he was an oncologist and he would really watch about the power of perception and the effects on the treatment. And so when somebody, one of his patients, for example, would imagine, it was a child, would imagine a, like a Pac-Man going through, when he would be hooked up for chemotherapy, getting the IV uh, treatment, he would imagine a Pac-Man going through his body, and eating all the cancer cells, right? And so, and, and through that imagery, he was having scans that were showing to have a faster improvement than somebody who felt like this diagnosis for them was a, you know, was their mortality, was mm-hmm. there no hope, right? And so they're finding this big link between perception and resiliency with treatment outcomes.
0: So yeah. What, I- Oh yeah. sorry, carry on. I, I, it's funny I'm I'm hearing a connection. I just got done reading Kelly McGonigal's book The Upside of Stress and she said that there's so much research out there right now that just says that if you just think about stress and have a mindset towards stress that stress is not bad, then stress affects you physiologically and like hormonally different than if you think about it as if it is you know, this negative, this negative thing. thing that is not helping you or preparing you for whatever the stress is causing, like whatever in your life is causing the stress. You know, so I think that that it it marries
1: so well with what you're what you're sharing. I think the mind body connection is phenomenal, huge, Huge. and you see that with people who thrive versus people that kind of get stuck. One thing that I want to kind of talk about briefly is the young survivor, the young breast cancer survivor, because when you're talking Casey about people who have had a lot of life experiences, and so Mm -hmm. maybe this isn't their first trauma, because most people experience trauma in their life. And I've seen this in the mentorship program where we've had women who say they get diagnosed at 70 with breast cancer, and they are are just very hey it's fine it'll be fine and i'm thinking <laughs> wow you are handling this so well well you know why this is not their first rodeo yeah <laughs> they have had other things happen in their lives sometimes worse you know they've had a divorce or a loss of a child or other illnesses to where when this happens to them They, they they're very much, Hey, listen, I've been through other things. I can overcome this too. And I will, and they just are ready to rock and roll. I have seen, and I think there is a a danger for younger survivors, people who get diagnosed in their twenties, thirties, and forties, perhaps this is their first trauma. You know, perhaps they haven't experienced these other life altering things yet, and so this is their first time being dealt something and it's obviously a huge blow. I mean, I can't speak for you, Sarah, but I certainly never expected to deal with this at the age of 35. Casey, I can only imagine at the age of 15. And but doesn't so, that make it all the more important to see a meta, like yes, see a mental health care yes. provider
0: because if you're like looking at this as like this is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life or that I'm in a, like the biggest hurdle I've ever had to jump like both mentally and physically and it's it's hard to hear the news doesn't it make sense to put somebody in your pocket to help navigate that so that on the other side like you've built this big resiliency Mm -hmm. and and now now whatever trauma comes out you're like i mean i just did that back there so right but if you if you don't then then you're gonna constantly be stuck with like this you know that hurdle is never gonna get jumped
1: no and you you need i mean i what i have found is that you know, I, I like to think I'm really tough, but you need professionals who can help you develop that resiliency muscle mm-hmm. and show you the error in your thinking, because we all participate in negative self-talk. It happens to the mm-hmm. strongest people. And it really is helpful to have somebody point that out to you and say, well, wait a minute, you know, this is, we've agreed that we, you know, your goal is this, and yet I'm hearing you say that. Why? why? And I mean, it, it's those light bulb moments that are invaluable to realizing the error in your own thinking that helps you get over that hurdle and look at it in a different way. So yeah, that's the whole reason I bring it up is that if, especially I think all women who are diagnosed should seek out, you know, at least one consultation um, to kind of get assessed and see if they would benefit. But I think in particular, young patients have an opportunity to really be proactive and know that, you know, it's not uncommon for you to be done with treatment and then to have a fallout later. And and if you know that that is going to happen, you know, to get in front of it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: What do you tell women whether old older or or younger that you
0: just see that they would benefit from improving their resilience? What do you recommend to help them grow through the experience?
2: Sure, and I think that there's so many different ways to grow through the experience. You know, I hear from both of you, you use a lot of humor, right? <laughs> there can be I use humor as well that When I was with my girlfriends at a young age, I would say, you know, well, I'm having the worst hair day, right? And so we kind of laugh (laughs) and I let it be okay to laugh and let it be okay to talk about it and not have it be this taboo subject. And so, and even though it was difficult, I used a lot of humor too. I think faith, I think is something that helps with resiliency. I think having a positive perception as we're talking about, like instilling that hope within yourself and the hope is about today. So I understand that some people will have treatment for the remainder of their life, but it's how do I have a quality of life today? So none of us know what's going to happen in our lives tomorrow, but how can I focus on today? Staying focused on the present.
1: Which Maybe is so hard to do before a cancer diagnosis. I mean, I didn't do that. I didn't live in the moment before. I will say that that the acknowledgement that, you know, you only have today, it was one of the blessings from my experience. And I am so much more present now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But that took work because I wasn't used to doing it.
2: Isn't that true? And I find that even sometimes I do get distracted or allow some things to affect me that normally wouldn't have when would I have that baseline to compare Right. But then I'll find that little things will happen in my life that remind me, oh, wait, like you need to think back about how stressful is this really? How important is this really? Go back to your baseline again and think about what you have versus what you don't have. Right. And so I find that all of us, it's really normal for us to lose sight of that. So even though we have that baseline to compare for that resiliency, we all can lose sight of that at times too and get overwhelmed by everyday type things. It's just going back. What we can do is we can go back with having that baseline and saying like, okay, how does this compare to you know, thinking of a a really difficult time? And sometimes it's okay just to be like today really is sucks, right? Today's a hard day. Like sometimes it's okay just to sit in that for a moment. It's just not getting stuck in it. So resilience is not that you are positive all the time and you don't have any other emotions except joy it's just that you do have all those emotions you just it's about working about trying not to get stuck in them and when you do get stuck in them that's when you come and see a counselor that's when you come and go to a support group that's when you have a mentor through faith through fire that's when you right that's when you use these resources to help you get unstuck and help you move forward again
1: yeah Oh, that's great. Yeah. Before we (laughs) conclude and talk about where patients can find you and any last advice, let's hear from our second sponsor.
0: SSM Health is a proud sponsor of the Besties with Breasties podcast. One in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer during their lifetime. Early detection is key and keeping up to date on yearly mammograms could be life-saving. At SSM Health, we offer patients in the St. Louis area online scheduling for mammograms, including next day appointments. Visit SSMHealth.com slash schedule ma'am to make your appointment now. And we are back, Casey. Before we finish up for today, um, if you could give one major piece of advice to women, what would it be?
2: Sure. So one, I would say, listen to your body listen to your mind, allowing grace and patience. One of my affirmations that I say to myself daily is grace and grit. Remember that, you know,
1: oh, I'm stealing that. Yeah, that's
2: <laughs> grace and grit, right? One of the things that I remind, so if you've ever sat across from me, there's a good chance I gave you the analogy of putting your oxygen mask on first before you help anybody else, right? Especially Even all you talk. young moms. Mm, yes. Right. So that airplane modality, right, of putting your oxygen mask on first, you have to fuel yourself first, or everyone's passed out. Right. And so (laughs) that's a really big piece of it. I think I've probably said that to most of the people who sat across from me. I would say asking for help, not because you're weak, but because you want to remain strong.
1: And let me just say that. Let me say, you guys, for listening, I always thought that people who needed help were weak. And then it was through this experience that I realized that the strongest people are the ones that ask for help, Mm -hmm. that are honest about how they are feeling And are not ashamed of that and Mm -hmm. seek help. So I just want to make that clarification because I used to be that person. And I I now realize that the most interesting, well-rounded, healthiest people that I know are the ones that are emotionally healthy and are not afraid to seek help for that. So there's my there's my PSA. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, and it's okay to not be strong all the time. So right. most of our growth happens when we're uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Honestly, that's when most of our growth happens. Um, and I think it's just reminding yourself that, especially if you've been in the role of care provider, that reminding yourself that you are worthy to be supported.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ooh.
2: And be provided care for yourself, right?
1: Yeah. That's awesome. Well, so how can patients find you? Are you doing in-person telehealth, both?
2: I'm doing both. I would say my primary practice is actually in person, and I do a lot of safety measures and follow the CDC as well as with our public health and safety guidelines. I do provide telehealth for people who are immune-compromised or just feel uncomfortable as well. So I provide that either through telephone or through a program that I utilize that's HIPAA-compliant called Doxy.me. Um. So I just really meet people with wherever they're at. And I'm in the office four days a week. So my phone number is 636-542-8920. And again, I'm Casey Mills. And the, uh, the website is www.risingwillowcounseling.com.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much, Casey, for being with us today and sharing all of your knowledge and your experience with everything.
2: Yep.
1: Next time, we're going to continue our conversation with Casey, who, in addition to being a licensed counselor, is also a certified mental health integrative medicine provider. Wow, that is a a mouthful. mouthful. (laughs) Okay, so, but basically, Casey, correct me if I'm wrong, that's basically the connection between what patients eat and their mental health, right? Yep.
2: Nutrition and mental health, and alongside with body movement and my favorite relaxation techniques, right? So yes, so it is that mind-body connection.
1: I am super excited to talk about this. I think we've all benefited from, I know, Sarah, you love the topic of nutrition. I recently Mm -hmm. tried one of those breath work sessions. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, my life was changed. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) we will talk about all that good stuff next time. And until then, see ya. Bye.